Ladies. The energy, see essence, you inhale the presence The air in your lung, that's the first step to blessing You're a priest, you're a king on the mountain climbing Are you up, are you down, doesn't matter, take your crown The energy, see essence, you inhale the presence Air in your lungs, that's the first step to blessing You're a priest, you're a king on the mountain climbing Are you up, are you down, doesn't matter, take your crown So you looked in the bucket, you saw a giant mass of crabs They were clawing at each other, slicing, dicing Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're tuned in to Glory Podcast. I'm your host, Monk. Uh, this episode is from a Bible study teaching that I did. Um, it, we were going through a series over the prayers of Paul, and this particular study is a close kind of dialed in focus on Second Thessalonians, the first chapter, specifically verses 11 and 12. And that's the source text. If you will scroll down to the show notes, I'm going to put all the teaching notes I used for this study in the show notes for your access. Um, so sit back, relax, and enjoy. This gets into a whole lot of down-the-rabbit-hole issues and dealing with Christianity and spirituality and it, it kind of centers around the core issue of was humanity ever cursed and is the world redeemed? And if so, why do we still experience bad things? So, like I said, sit back, uh, get out your notepads and scroll through those show notes at the bottom to get the teaching notes and other sources that you can use to enhance your study. Peace out, and here's the study. Later. Read this prayer, and you can pray this prayer. Again, all these prayers of Paul, last time I taught on a prayer, Paul gave you all this word of advice. You can pray these prayers too. Personally, I'm in a season right now where I'm like kind of at a loss with some things personally going on in my life. So I lean on these prayers of Paul to be like, okay, God, I don't know what to pray, but as I'm reading my text, I'm like, oh, there's a good prayer for Paul. I will just pray that prayer until um, I feel, you know, like God's giving me some more specific things to pray about. So source text, 2 Thessalonians, it's on your sheet too. Um, reading from my Bible, I'm reading from the NASB, and then the printouts on your sheet are from the ESV. So two versions, I'm going to be flipping back and forth through. Uh, but here we go. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12. Uh, to this end, we also pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and you may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, just take a moment, 30 seconds to a minute here and just read that to yourself, pray that to yourself and just think about it. Give yourself you know, a little time to percolate on that.
And so anything that bubbles up, uh, I encourage you to write those down or just think about them as I'm talking. And we'll have some time for commentary and questions at the end. Um, I'm coming at this, when I started breaking this down line for line, really to me it was kind of like two big ideas Paul tackles in this prayer. And they're both very mystical, but also very practical, which tends to be the case with Paul. So first big idea is we live in a redeemed world, but people, aka us, you and me, even to this day, we fail to see it or believe it is so. And we'll go into more why that is in a minute. And then the second big idea he prays in this prayer is Christ is in us, which gives us the power and authority to take care of number one. And then that goes all the way back. That's a whole nother rabbit hole. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And fun fact, y'all hear me say this a lot too. Um, almost everything you read in the Bible can go back to the first four chapters of Genesis, right? It's the, it's like literally like the same three and a half problems. It's just that the, the, the human experience has been, um, it's just different ways of approaching it, different ways of looking at it, how you apply it to different groups, and then what's God's doing in the midst of history uh, to try to communicate with people, hey, like we, we've been through this already and I gave you a solution. So uh, some Questions for application to consider while we're going through this, and I'll hit these again at the end. Um, but how can I walk in a manner worthy of my calling and Christ's calling? And how can I better see Christ in me and me in him? So big idea number one, let's get into this. Um, if we live in a redeemed world, but people fail to see or believe it is so. So if the world is redeemed, why do bad things keep happening? Why do we keep messing things up? You know, I'm starting with the easy stuff today, right? Um, Y'all remember the story of Gideon, right? Gideon, he's like, we have these enemies who are about to take us over. God, what do I, what do, I do? He's like, if you're so good, God, why do bad things keep happening? Why are these people about to come in and kill us so Gideon's asking that question already right and then God's like put me to the test dude and then we have this miraculous victory with a ragtag army who doesn't even throw a punch or shoot a bullet or an arrow or sling a stone whatever weapons they use that day I'm not that kind of historian but um one of the big things this goes back to Genesis 3 if we live in a redeemed world and um we fail to see that it is so. I'm just going to mention this. A lot of times we teach that, oh, it goes back to the fall, Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve were cursed because of their disobedience, right? But if you go back to Genesis 3 and you read it carefully, God never curses Adam and Eve. Therefore, he never curses humanity. He curses two things, but he doesn't curse Adam. He doesn't curse Eve. And so what he curses in Genesis 3, he curses the ground and he curses the serpent. So you and I actually have never been cursed, but it goes back to what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about God. 
So we believe God has cursed us or we believe our ability to do good enough for God is going to basically, he's going to dish out rewards and punishments according to how good we are able to do something. That in turn, he'll say like, okay, you think, basically he is going to reward or punish your perspective about how he would reward or punish you. Right? He's wanting to bless you the whole times, but if you don't think he's going to bless you, even when he's blessing you, you're not going to interpret it as a blessing because he respects your perspective and your power and your freedom so much, he will even give you the freedom not to choose him. He gave Adam and Eve that freedom. They did not choose him. So the sin was not that they ate of the fruit. The sin was two things. As one, they believed they had to do something to be like God. They were already like God. He walked with them in the cool of the day. And the second thing was they sought wisdom, they sought knowledge outside of God's will. They sought wisdom, they sought knowledge elsewhere, as if when they were walking with him in the garden in the cool of the day, as if he wasn't gonna teach them things. Okay. So Paul is kind of setting up this prayer reaching back into all of this con shared context, shared knowledge with the people that he is um, writing this letter to right now. And then another thing, another angle to this, um, in the next verse I'm going to read, I'm going to go back one verse in Thessalonians because to me that verse, he sets up what he starts to pray about. But something just to consider when you're reading Paul or really any of the New Testament is these guys knew the Torah, the law, the prophets very well. And the Torah, the law, the prophets were part of a tradition of what's called wisdom literature. And so there's like what we call literary conventions in wisdom literature. So these stories, histories, whatever you want to call them, were written in a way where they weren't supposed to be tied up into a nice little bow and have a happy ending. They were actually written on purpose to present a problem and never actually quite solve the problem. That way you would constantly have to go back and reread and meditate upon it and reread and meditate upon it because their belief was, and even in how they believed in God was, God's kind of un, unidentifiable and unquantifiable. And so if we have a standard answer for everything, then we don't leave space for God to be God. And so has anybody ever read their Old Testament and being like, that's a weird story? <laughs> yeah. And so just something, a little note of like, that's a weird story. Why is that here? That's very problematic. Well, that's part of this tradition of it being wisdom literature. Was That was actually done on purpose, done intentionally for you to go back, read about it, think about it, pray about it, and then different layers start to emerge. And so Paul, Jesus, the other apostles that write, they're coming out of this tradition of wisdom literature. And so they're writing commentaries on ancient wisdom literature and then they're kind of writing their own so you get some of this in Paul's prayer here that he's praying for specific things 
but it also seems kind of like no problems are solved. He's just pointing you a direction and then kind of letting it be. And it's again done on purpose for the, the effect that you would go back and read and study and let God speak to you. Um, so we live in a redeemed world, but people fail to see and believe it is so, right? So Adam and Eve didn't know how blessed they were. They reached outside of themselves and God for an answer. And the serpent was cursed in the ground, or in this case, the, the world around them, their environment becomes cursed. So, but that curse ended, and that's what I'm going to get into. So the, the world itself is, is not cursed now. We'll get into that in a second. But Adam and Eve were never cursed, even though the ground might have been cursed. So that's a good First Thessalonians 1, verse 10. This sets up the prayer. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And then he goes into verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you. Um, so when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. So Christ is coming in that day. And here's the thing about that word day. It's um, usually translated as kairos. And that's a, that's a weird word. We don't really have a word for it in English, but it's kind of like it can be at the same time. It can be two things happening at the same time. It can be one, both this grand and numinous moment that's down the road in the future. And it also can be happening right now at this place, at this time in the present moment. And so when he uses, when he says, he comes on that day, the word he's using for that day doesn't really translate in English very well because it's both a future event and both a process is happening right now. And then who comes on that day to be glorified? Christ. But where is Christ? According to verse 10, where is he? Christ, where are you? Where are you? Are you there, Lord? Are you there? Are you there? Oh, it says, actually, he's going to be glorified in his saints. Meaning me and you, meaning Paul, meaning all the people at Thessalonica he's talking to. And they were messy, real human beings that had a lot of problems. Um, that's one of the things. Anyone in here watch The Chosen? That's one of the things I think that series really does. There's a lot of accurate stuff, and then there's some stuff they throw in there just to keep the story moving, keep it compelling. But I think it does a really good job of showing you, like, oh, these were real people with real problems. Um, so when Paul's referring to the people in Thessalonica as saints, they're also real people with real problems. They're not just like some holy people, holier-than-thou people. And then he says next in verse 10, and to be marveled at all who have believed. So everyone who has believed, we're all in this together because our testimony to you was believed. And so he's talking about Christ coming and being glorified in the saints. Then he's talking about the people in Thessalonica. Hey, you are these saints. And this revelation of Christ being in you came from our testimony 
that I gave to you when, whenever, you know, he was teaching or on a missionary journey or whoever it came from. But now he knows that because they gave their testimony, now the people in Thessalonica are saints as well. And one question I did have, I didn't write this on the notes, but I was like, what qualified them to be saints? They didn't take any special classes. They didn't get ordained. It's just something to think about. But I think it, it points to you're a saint when you believe and realize who you really are. And um, that's a lot of what we see in the world today, a lot of even what we see in the church. The church doesn't have like a behavior problem, although you might interact with people in and out of the church or just the church itself. You might not like some of the behaviors you see, but the church has an identity problem. And so if you look at it that way, Paul is saying, hey, you're all saints. This is who you are. Christ is actually glorified in you. And that's kind of our duty and responsibility. And that kind of leads us into idea number two, but I'm going to hang around here for a second. So in Romans... Um, 5.12 and then in verses 18 and 19 also and that whole passage is super rich I just pulled out the verses that kind of get to the main points because what, what tends to happen in this and why he's praying for them is like there were people coming to the church at Thessalonica trying to pull them back into their old behavior pull them back into whatever the things they were doing in the past and so and they're basically trying to say, well, if Christ is in you, and this is all you have, this is all you have to do to become a saint and a good person of God. Like it's too good to be true. It's too easy. They're trying to pull them back into the old of whatever it was they're doing, whether it was their old religion, old sins, old behavior patterns, and basically saying that sin is more powerful than Christ. And I'd be amiss if I didn't say, I hear that a lot today. And then even I'll personally, personally, like I'll do that to myself. I'll beat myself up and be like, hey, this thing that I struggled with or this thing that I'm going through, you get mired down in how bad and intimidating it can be. And you think that the sin or the struggle or the mountain that you're going through is more powerful than the God that saved you the God that's with you, and the God that's right there with you right now. And so Paul addresses this to a different group of people in another letter, but it's, again, you'll notice these, these same themes going on, these same themes. Anything you read Paul, in which y'all done some prayers of Paul, you are reading Philippians, so you're kind of like, I'm starting to hear a lot of the same things. It's just... His approach is a little different because he's preaching to different people. So in 512, 18 and 19, again, this is from the ESV. If you're on your sheet, if you want to compare it to another version you have, go for it. Um, so therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that was Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
All right, that's verse 12. So death comes through one man, Adam, right? Adam does not keep his house in order. He seeks wisdom outside of God, and then it creates this chain of events that causes death. And kind of an interesting side note, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which opened their eyes to have the knowledge that God has. They weren't eternal beings yet, as far as they, they couldn't live forever, but they had the potential to live forever. If they eat from the tree of life, right, they live forever, but they have knowledge that God doesn't, doesn't give them. So if you have knowledge that God doesn't give you, and you apply that knowledge, what do things go very well? No, things, things don't go very, they might go very, they might go well for a little bit, but then the wheels fall off and things get really bad. So that's the situation Adam and Eve are in. Now imagine they have this knowledge they did not get from God and they're trying to apply it. Things are going really bad. Then they have eternal life on top of it. Like they're immortal in their bodies with this knowledge. It, it would just be terrible for them. And so there's kind of this angle that God was not able to give them eternal life kind of thematically there in the garden because they reached for knowledge that was outside of God. So death had to enter the picture, not only to protect Adam and Eve, but to protect their children, to protect the rest of the earth. So Adam sins, the ground is cursed, the serpent is cursed, and death enters into the picture because now there's knowledge available that's not knowledge given from God. It comes from somewhere else. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's disobedience, or by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul's point is simply... Hey, if Adam was able to create this chain of cause and effect on everybody, death, disobedience, sin, how much more so is Christ, right? If Adam, if Adam unleashed the power of sin, Christ unleashed the power of righteousness through his death and what he accomplished. And then later in that chapter, he's like, so let's stop empowering sin and let's just focus on what Christ has done. And then the whole sin issue takes care of itself. And this is part of what he is encouraging in his prayer to the Thessalonians. It's part of what he's encouraging them to do. Like realize Christ is in you right there. And that is the thing that makes you worthy of the calling. Because all these other things you've been chasing after, that's a calling, but it's not his calling. That's some other voice, right? What other voice did Adam and Eve listen to in the garden? A serpent. Some other voice. It's not God's voice. You can go chase that, but it's not good for you. So, and the question I ask there is, and there's something to consider, if Christ dealt with sin once and for all on the cross, why do we still struggle? Same question Gideon asked. Question a lot of people have asked. Um, so now we're kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of the prayer here. So in 111, 
I'll just read 1 Thessalonians 1, 11 again. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for every good or for good and for every work of faith by his power. So what gives us the power if we if we just read, just take uh, 1 Thessalonians for its for itself. First Thessalonians uh, one or Second Thessalonians, sorry, one, verse eleven. What actually gives us the power for the good works, the power for faith? Is it our own efforts? Is it our own plans? Is it our own ability to make a schedule and commit to it? All right, wait. Me and Steph had this conversation last night, and I'm like, we have to have a schedule in order to get all this done. And it's like, no, God, she's like, God will take care of it. Okay. So, right? What happens if we attempt to redeem things but do it from the wrong source? Again, we saw Adam and Eve do that, but what gives us the power in First Thessalonians in that prayer? Right? To this end, we pray for you that. Doesn't say Matthew may make you worthy of his calling. Oh, God makes you worthy of the calling he's given you. So it's his calling in you, and he's the one making you worthy. And in that, you will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. But that faith and the good works and all the things that's happened, is it the Thessalonians' power by which they're able to do that? Is it Paul's power by which you're able to do that? Is it my power by which I'm able to do that? No, it's by his power. Right? So Paul is saying, hey, Christ is in you. He's given you the calling. Seek after the right things. And all of these good works and all of these desires that you have to do good on the planet Earth, those will happen. Just make sure you let him do it. And then you act upon that obedience. You know, like, like, I want to adopt, like, all the little babies in the world and, like, teach all the little orphan children in the world. Like, I have a, I have a heart for that. And that's, that's not a bad thing, right? We wouldn't say that's a bad thing or feeding homeless people. But I could try to do that in my own efforts, and it looked really, really good, but it might destroy me if I do it on my own effort, my own strength. That's what Paul's saying here. These good works you want to do are pure and righteous and holy, but make sure you allow God to be God in the midst of it. So, big idea number two. And I kind of started hitting on that already. Christ is in us, and he gives us the power and the authority to take care of, right? Big idea number one, that like, if the world's redeemed, why don't we experience that? Why don't we see that? So let's read uh, back to our source text, verse 12 from 2 Thessalonians 1. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of seems redundant because... We're, t 
talking about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're talking about the good works that the Lord Jesus Christ does, but he's talking about where is Christ located? Verse 12, Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So he's in me, I'm in him. And then that's the gift of his grace, right? Then we have our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, which are, is creating a parallel, right? I'm in Christ, Christ is in me, just as Christ is in God and God is in Christ. Um, which is a little different kind of to wrap our heads around because they still, there was still this belief in those days that God was kind of like this distant God in the sky and Jesus was there just taking the punishment from God. But what Paul's setting up here is this parallel that like, no, actually God was in Christ. And he says this in 2 Thessalonians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself when he was on the cross. So God was actually not this distant God that Christ was just receiving all the punishment and the wrath of God from. Actually, God was in Christ living out our experience. It was a partnership. It was a dance. It was a marriage even. So, um, but I really like what Paul says back in Romans. And there's just a lot of, um, there's a lot of parallels between Romans and Thessalonians because of similar similar people groups, similar cultures. Um, they're like in and out of the Roman Empire at the time too, so all that stuff's going on. But I like what he says there. Um, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been, this is Romans 1 verses uh, 20 and 21. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts were darkened. You know, so it goes back to that whole thing. If the world is reconciled and redeemed, why aren't we experiencing it? Always well, like, if you just look out on creation, it's obvious that just in nature, God has redeemed nature. God's power and presence is there. Um, but if I don't know God or I know God, I choose not to follow him. Again, he respects your freedom so much because he's not a tyrant. He's a lover. And true love is not me forcing you to do things because it's good for you. True love is I'll give you the power to not believe in me. This is God speaking to humanity. God speaking to me and you. You are so powerful and I respect your freedom so much. I will give you the freedom even to not choose me. And then, but if you do that for too long, what happens? Then this is Paul's... Um, observation of the Roman people, they become futile in their thinking, and then as you become futile, useless, pointless from going after the wrong things in your thinking, your hearts get darkened, and you begin to turn into something else through your own choice, through your own choosing. So, 
how or where is Christ glorified? This is so we we have this redeemed earth, but we're not experiencing experiencing that. What's the solution? And again, verse twelve: the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God in us, in us recognizing that. And then in uh, 2 Corinthians, he tells us that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And this is a big deal because the old law, the Old Testament, or the, the Torah and the law of Moses, um, it was a law of condemnation. It was, here are these rules. If you follow these rules, you will be protected. You will be able to survive, particularly when you are in the desert, you know, wandering around. If you follow these, if you follow these rules, like you're not going to get sick and die. And yeah, you don't need to be sleeping with each other's wives and husbands because then you're just going to end up killing each other. Um, you know, and then inbreeding and all those other things happen when you're living in small communities, right? So he's like, just follow these simple rules, you'll, you'll survive. But he even says, he's like, the um, man was not made for the law. That law was made for man because they were so stubborn, hard-headed, disobedient, that God had to give them something in order to allow them to survive. Um, but it's still a law of condemnation because it's like, oh, you didn't follow the law. Since you didn't follow the law, now we now we have a punishment. Now there's something you have to do, etc. At infinitum, and then you set up a temple system around that, and so it's the priest can make atonement for you because you're not clean enough to approach the throne of God. And God's like, that was never my point, never my intention for this. I sought closeness with you. Go back to Genesis um, during the fall, Genesis 3. God never left Adam and Eve. God never cursed Adam and Eve. God cursed the ground. God cursed the serpent. But it was Adam and Eve's mind that began to change. And then violence starts sprouting up upon the earth and all these other things begin to happen. And so, where and how is Christ glorified? Paul tells them there, like, he's glorified in you, and he's glorified in you not through anything that you do, but through his grace, which is the opposite of a legal penal system. And so, I'll leave you with a couple more verses here. They kind of tie it all together. So this is in John. And John's an interesting gospel to read because he is less focused on the traditions or the, the traditions of Israel and the Jews. And he's more focused on the spiritual lineage, the spiritual heritage of Jesus so in John 14, or sorry, John 17, and this is known as the high priestly prayer. So this is Jesus basically stepping in as the high priest 
in this new covenant, which mirrors their old temple system where they had a high priest that would make atonement for the people. So he's praying what is called the high priestly prayer. I included John 17, 4 and 5 and 21 through 23 on your sheet there. So that's what I'm going to read. Beautiful chapter. Um, it's a great buildup if you read probably chapter 14 all the way through 17. You kind of see how everything builds up and unfolds. But I think this part kind of what the point I'm trying to make here gives you the nuts and bolts of everything. So I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work. He's speaking to God right now that you gave me to do. And now, Father. Glorify me in your own presence with all the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That that's that's a trip right there. That's that's a three-year-long study right there, just that verse. Um verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That sounds familiar that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. A lot of stuff going on there, but again, God, Christ's desire is that we are all one in knowing who we are in Christ and Christ within us. And it is the lack of that awareness that causes the divisions, causes the strife, causes us to, again, the church doesn't have a behavior problem. The church has an identity problem. You fix the identity, the behaviors follow, right? You don't know your identity the behaviors follow, okay? And then John, John 14, 20, in that day, again, similar language as to what Paul says in first, or sorry, yeah, second Thessalonians, right? He's talking about in that day. Well, here Christ uses that same phrase, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you and me and I in you. And again, it's that language of that day is both it can be this future event, which he's talking about his death and resurrection, but it's also right now. And he even makes these jokes in that passage of, when will we see the kingdom of God? And he says, well, the kingdom of God is near you. It's, it's near you. <laughs> Actually, I'm right here. And the whole point was for him to tell them like, hey, like this temple system where you go to temple to try to get closer to the presence of God. He's like, no. I'm just going to make you the temple. How about that? And then that's a whole nother study you can go on. And so getting back to it, how can I, a little application here, walk in a manner worthy of my calling and Christ's calling? Again, it's that identity piece. If you know that Christ is in you and you are in Christ, you can hear the calling of Christ and then allow him to lead you into that rather than going all the way back to Adam and Eve, reaching outside of God, reaching outside of yourself to try to accomplish God's work. And then how can I better see Christ in me and me in him? 
And again, that's that Kairos moment of it's a practice and a process. It's both true now, but as you contemplate on it and meditate on it and ask him, he will show you more and more of who that is. And so that's all I got for y'all. We will open it up for some comments and questions now.